2: Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And
0: I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we'll be joined by a woman who's used to making history, most recently as the first Alaska native and first woman to hold the state's one and only House seat.
2: Which she flipped. Congresswoman Mary Peltola is here to talk about her history-making election and what she wants to do in D.C., as well as her reputation for working across the aisle, including her friendly relationship with Sarah Palin. Congressman, welcome to The Breakdown. Welcome, Thank you so much. Well, before we get to your election and and, and your career in politics, we want to talk about your childhood. You were born in 1973, which is actually the same year your predecessor in Congress was elected. Tell us a little bit about your family
3: uh, in in Alaska. Sure. Uh, My mom is Alaska native. She's Yupik, and I was raised... uh, um, on the same stretch of river that she grew up on. Uh, I commercial fished. Uh, My dad was taught how to, he's from Nebraska. Uh, He's a wheat farmer and a corn husker fan like all good Nebraskans are. And um, he was taught how to commercial fish by my mom's brothers. And so um, the place that I fish has been in our family as far back as anybody can remember. And my dad was a school teacher and he's a commercial pilot and he recreationally, we had a, we had a dog team and just very, you know, stereotypical what we imagine Alaskans do. And when he first went to Alaska, he taught in Fort Yukon and And the other teacher, one of the other teachers in Fort Yukon was Don Young, and they were fast friends. They were hunting partners and they did things on the trap line together and they were small business owners. We should say Don Young is your
2: predecessor in
3: Congress. Yes, Congressman. Long serving. Yeah. Yes. Forty nine year incumbent Republican Congressman Don Young. Yes. Um, so they they were good friends. And Don had been in the state legislature in the House and then in the Senate, and he intended to run for governor. So he ran for House to build name recognition, statewide name recognition. And he ran against a incumbent who was unbeatable. Unfortunately, the incumbent, um, his plane went down and they didn't ever find him. And that was Nick Begich Sr., and so because um, Congressman Young had also been in the race, there was a special election and he prevailed. And my mom and dad campaigned for Congressman Young when uh, my mom was pregnant with me. So wow. i in my entire life mm. and was very happy to be in the field of candidates who were uh, running to um, backfill his seat. There were 48 of us to begin with and, um, it you know and and then of course it's such an honor to have been selected to serve in to the remainder of his seat and work on some of his priorities
0: we want to get to that but uh, we sure. want to come back to your childhood yeah. you mentioned that you had uh-huh. a dog team recreationally tell us about that what does that mean
3: oh uh, my sister won a george atla dog george atla is a very well known alaskan native musher he's athabascan and Uh, There was a new grocery store built, and as part of the festivities of the grand opening, they raffled off a George Atla dog, and my sister won it. And you can't really have a George Atla dog and not have a dog team. So we got a dog team, and I grew up mushing. Um, My dad, uh, we would uh, fill our freezer full of fish and then put one fish a day in in a huge uh, pressure cooker. And that's what we would feed our dog team along with scraps from leftovers from the school cafeteria. Um, lucky and- dogs.
2: That sounds like delicious, delicious. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
3: Our, our porch always smelled like delicious pressure cooked salmon. Um, but I, I learned a lot of good takeaways from dog mushing. They don't, th- your dogs do not listen to you unless you feed them. They, <laughs> I, you know, when I was in ninth grade, I was in a lot of extracurriculars and wasn't involved in feeding the dogs with my dad and then was in a race and they dragged me for a very long ways and then they ran away from me and wouldn't come back. So that was a very important lesson that y- y- to be part of a team, you really have to maintain that um, esprit de corps and that um, relationship.
2: Yeah, I'm wondering, I mean, you mentioned that your mom's Yupik, and as we'll get to, you have a reputation for being very nice. Is that something that was part of the Native culture you grew up in or, or just more broadly Alaska culture?
3: I think it is broadly Alaskan. Uh, we need each other. Um, you never know when you're going to be out in some slough and run out of gas or need a part, and 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 who might happen by. But it certainly is also part of the Yupik culture. Um, I think probably before we had contact with Christians, I think we were very um, alike with Buddhists. We have a lot of rules and and a lot of rules about. Um, keeping your own ego in check and rules, you know, just about not being aggressive about being having a neutral energy, and not showing up with all this um, aggression, or anger. Um, So that's been very helpful. And then also a lot of rules about what you say, like we're not supposed to ever talk about anything that we haven't seen with our own eyes or heard with our own ears or outside of our own personal experience. Um, we are like, what, what are some other rules that I can think of? Um, if you say something bad about someone that will happen to you, like if, um, like kind of like karma, Yes, we are very big on karma. Mm.
0: Well, that's going (laughs) to be challenged when you're in D.C. Yeah, right. On
3: a lot of levels, yeah. Um,
0: So you grew up in a town, I guess called Bethel, uh, which is in the southwest part of the state. And, you know, those of us living in the lower 48, about all I know about life in Alaska, I learned from Northern Exposure, which wasn't even filmed in Alaska. Uh, You know, what was it it like growing up in, describe Bethel. Like, what, what was it like? How many people lived there? That kind of thing.
3: Well, right now there's about, 6,000 people living in Bethel, and it's a hub for a region of about 30,000 people. And it was, of course, smaller when I was growing up, about 3,000. It's 75 miles up the Cuscoquim River, and that's the hub because that's as far as our ocean-going barges can make it. And so it's a freight distribution center, and it also has our courts and the grocery store and a lot of the things that um, people from the 56 surrounding villages need. Um, there are no roads between any of our communities. Our rivers really are our roads. All Alaskans live on the ocean or rivers because we are tied to our waterways um, in, in every season. So um, the real name of Bethel is Mumtreechemut. It means the place of many fish caches. So that's that is kind of a nod to our really long-standing relationship with salmon. Right. Yeah. Well, it must
2: have been then some culture shock when you went away to university in northern Colorado. Tell us about that transition. Like, what was it like leaving Alaska and coming down and and, and sort of being plopped in the middle of university?
3: Well, I was really lucky because my dad had a very close relationship with his mother and siblings. And I would often go and live with my non-native grandmother. Um, So kindergarten, second grade, Um, seventh grade, ninth grade. So I had been assimilated. and, And you'll notice the way that I speak is very Colorado accent. And that is not characteristic of the region that I'm from, or necessarily Alaska. But I am very lucky that I Um, It wasn't as bad of a culture shock as it can be. I know I went to 10th grade in Pennsylvania, and that was very different to me. Uh, The East Coast is so different than Alaska.
0: Did you always assume you would go back to Alaska when you left?
3: Oh, I've always known that. Yeah, I've spent every summer on our river. I feel like a migratory bird. And when things thaw out, I have to go home. Um, So, yeah. And I raised my kids uh, the same way I was raised in rural Alaska. Yeah. So after you left
2: university and did come back to Alaska, you actually interned in the state legislature before you ran in 1996, so in your very early 20s. Talk about that period and just like what you learned interning, what grabbed you, what made you want to continue that uh, public service.
3: Yeah, I would I had intended to be a teacher and work in remote Alaskan villages and I did a legislative internship for Irene Nikolai who represented an interior community and I fell in love with the legislative process. I just thought it was really fascinating all the give and take and I wondered if I might be able to do more for education in terms of public policy and and being at the the budget level, the broader state budget level. So I ran uh, after that internship and I was 22 I came very close. I lost by 56 votes and that made me really want to do it. Uh, I really knew I wanted to do it at that point. And so in 98, I ran again. And by then I was married and pregnant and then um, was able to win and came to Juno and was sworn in. And, and at that time, my baby was three months old. And then I ended up having three more kids while I was in office in Juneau um, over the 10 years. Um. So how did that's you wild. balance all that? <laughs>
0: yeah, I <mean>, that uh, <laughs> sounds a like lot. Nancy Pelosi. Actually, although she wasn't in politics, but she had five kids at the uh, within like six years or something.
3: Well, I I think it was not as hard and and as challenging as a lot of working mothers' situations are. I I had a white collar job. I had staff, and I you know I wasn't um a you know I my heart goes out to folks who are on their feet all day, waitresses, teachers. Um, people who work in grocery stores, I think it's much more demanding and challenging um, when you're not the boss of your office.
2: Yeah. I know at that time, um, you also were part of what's known as the Bush Caucus, which is, I think, something that would be very unique in, I mean, obviously the name, but the, the, the makeup of it is not something we see a lot in D.C. Tell us about that and kind of what you learn from
3: from that bipartisan caucus. Sure. We came together. There were 10 rural districts, um, the non-road system, the districts, the house districts that didn't have a railroad or a road in their district, uh, and we call those we call that the Bush. So there were 10 of us and usually there were five Republicans and five Democrats and our coalition and and our legislature is small. There's only 40 in the House and 20 in the Senate. So having a, a coalition of 10 was very substantive and we could really move the dial and advocate for things that we wanted in the budget. And we were able to stop legislation that was detrimental to one of our members districts. So it, it was a very good coalition, and that's really where I get my bipartisan lens at that. But again, this was I left 14 years ago, and the world was just shaped differently. We mm-hmm. didn't have the intense partisanship. We didn't have social media. It was just a completely different world in so many ways.
0: After you left, you helped Lisa Murkowski's write-in campaign after she lost the primary. What drew you to her campaign, especially a write-in campaign, which can be tough?
3: she and I were freshmen together in the state house. There were 10 in our freshman class and she was one of them. And she is a few years older than I am. Her kids were five and eight at the time. And like I said, I had a three month old. So she was very helpful to me in giving me working mom tips. So I've always really appreciated Lisa as a friend and she was primaried out of Uh, her seat by a gentleman named Joe Miller, and he was very much to the right. And the Alaska Native community had a lot of concerns about his philosophies and approaches. So really, it was the Alaska Native community, the Alaska Federation of Natives had a meeting with her and begged her and implored her to run a write-in campaign and promise that The Native community would do everything in our power to help her get elected. So all the different regions really backed her and made sure that people knew how to spell her name and understood the importance of having her win that write-in. That is such a good point.
2: You have to spell the name right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We are going to talk a little bit more probably about the senator and also Sarah Palin after a break. uh, When we come back, we will continue our conversation with Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are thrilled to have with us today, Mary Peltola. She was elected to represent Alaska in the House this fall in a special election and just won a full two year term. She is the first Democrat to hold that seat in half a century. So we want you to demystify Alaska politics for us a little bit, right? From the lower 48, it's a bit confusing. Read in presidential elections, you brought us Sarah Palin, who many sort of think helped pull the GOP to the right. But as we were just discussing, Senator Murkowski is an independent, very bipartisan. Um, And both your U.S. senators just voted for the same-sex marriage bill this month. So how do you describe Alaska politics to those of us who are not in the know?
0: Yeah, what's the through line in all that?
3: Yeah, no, I think Alaskans are very practical. I think we definitely vote for the person over the party. And you saw that when Sarah Palin got elected as governor, she really had not been part of the Republican establishment. And she challenged uh, Frank Murkowski, then Governor Frank Murkowski, Senator Murkowski's dad. And there were a number of other very formidable, experienced Republicans in the field, and she won handily. Um, And then um, with Lisa, we all know her, and she is so easy to work with, and she has such a great calm demeanor. And honestly, I am blown away how here in Washington D.C., she really is on a pedestal. People, I haven't met anybody who doesn't love Lisa Murkowski. She is really, really uh, held in high regard and and respected. Have and you I met think Ted
0: Cruz yet. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
3: I haven't met as many senators as I have on the House side, of course. Yeah. yeah.
0: But what is it about, uh, you know, all those things? I mean, is it is it a libertarian streak? Is it a, you know, not liking the extremes on either side? I mean, what is it that, you know, that connects all those things that Marisa just mentioned?
3: Well, we are, we do have a very strong libertarian streak in Alaska, but the other thing is we're very small. We only have 750,000 people and that, you know, coming from California, you'll understand that in your state legislature, in your assembly, one house member has, a, as I think more than all of the constituents I have in the whole entire state of Alaska. So that shows you how small we are in terms of numbers And we really do know our legislators. I worked with uh, Senator Sullivan. He was our attorney general. He was our commissioner of uh, natural resources, Department of Natural Resources. Um, Lisa and I had been um, freshmen together I knew Don Young through my family and and I'm not an exception. This is I am a very um, regular Alaskan and Ted Stevens. We all felt very close to Ted Stevens uh, when I had my fourth child. He said, so what would you name this one? And I said, Nora. And he said, oh, after Johnny Quinn's mom. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they all know everybody. Well, and I don't want to spend too much time on her, but you and Palin
2: actually have a, a pretty close relationship. You were both young mothers pregnant at the same time when you were in the state house and she was governor, but you did just beat her twice and I think again watching this all from here and her sort of broader persona it's a little bit of a head scratcher we just yeah tell us about your relationship with her
3: well, I I really appreciate you saying we were young mothers. I was actually I think 35 and and the doctor said I was a geriatric. <laughs> I know they do that. It's awful. terrible. Yes. And she I was on baby number 4 and she was on baby number 5 and I was so envious of her because you couldn't even tell she was pregnant and I was as big as a barn. I I was not a pretty pregnant person. So, um there was that totally irrelevant, but <laughs> she was really easy to work with when she was the governor. And, and as a Democrat and as a rural person, it there was a, a, a very easy working relationship. She spent many summers commercial fishing with her husband's family in Bristol Bay. So there was the fishing connection and her, her then husband is UPIC also. So our kids are probably related, honestly. They have five kids. I now have seven kids, including my three-step kids. They're all UPIC. I'm, if, if we did a DNA test, I'm sure they're related. So there, there are all these things that bring us together. And in Alaska, you learn quickly that Friends come and go, but enemies are yours to keep. And you just don't ever want to burn a bridge.
0: You know, we have this image of Sarah Palin. Mostly, Most of us got introduced to her in 2008 when she was John McCain's running mate. Hockey mom, flamethrower, bomb thrower. You have this really good relationship with her. Are there things that you see and know about her that just get lost on us?
3: Yeah. And and people in the press even say, oh, what, well, you know, I was so intimidated by her. But when you meet her, she's very kind. She's very personable. She has such uh, a charisma. And she's very beautiful. And that is um, just it's disarming when you meet her in person. And she does have such a warm way of engaging with you. She'll touch your hand. She'll laugh she's just very engaging so um the her pers- her larger persona i think that people who don't know her is very different than people who do know her. Well, let's talk about how you beat
2: her. And as you said, I think, what, 47 other candidates. Ultimately, you ran as pro-choice, pro-jobs, pro-fish, pro-families. What was your campaign strategy? And you didn't get a lot of help at first from the Democratic Party. So, like, how did you make
3: that case to Alaskans? Well, I was lucky because I had served in the legislature for 10 years. So having... worked in the legislature having served on the budget on the finance committee having served in various budget subcommittees you really do get a breadth of information and and having served 10 years allowed me to have various um, trips all around the state Our, our state is enormous if you cut Alaska in half Texas would be the third largest state I know California is also very big and you guys probably have six states within your state and we certainly have six different regions within our state and it's I just can't even overstate how enormous it is. It, um, the district that I represented from Juneau was 900 miles. It took a day to get home and two flights and thousands of dollars. So it really is just big. And then being a lifelong Alaskan, I think that it was really easy for me to relate to other Alaskans and, and it, it, being plain spoken, I think, really helped and not using messages, canned messaging that you often hear in the media and in the lower 48. Um, You know, immigration is important to us, but not nearly as important as it would be to a lower 48 state. And actually, our immigration concerns for me are much more on the western coast. We had two gentlemen from Russia come over and on a boat and they were evading their conscription and so it's it's just different and i i speak alaskanese well what
0: what is an alaska democrat and how is it different from a democrat in the lower 48
2: yeah i'm thinking about specific issues like climate change oil like
3: well, and there's rural Democrats and urban Democrats. And 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 I think urban Democrats are much more in line with folks from the lower 48 and the concerns there. And then rural Democrats, we really don't have the luxury of being platform Democrats. Um, wolf control is a very big issue for us. Bear control, predator issues are really important to our food security. Our ungulates are um we're always worried about having enough caribou and moose to fill our freezers and salmon. So we're, we're different on, on a lot of issues. Um, Rural Democrats, we didn't really have the luxury when, when you represent a, a state house district, the size of Oregon and you don't have any roads connecting any of the communities, you really have pressing needs and you don't have the luxury of being Um, engaged in philosophical discussions. You really have to bring home the bacon for your district and and solve real problems. We have 20 or 30 communities that still don't have running water. Um, the community of Stebbins on the lower Yukon, they they had a terrible fire that consumed their grocery store and their bulk fuel storage tank. So this community right now is trying to figure out how they're going to get groceries and stove oil to heat their homes, and it's winter. Right. So, you know, talking about um, philosophical things, is not really a luxury that is afforded to a rural democrat.
2: Yeah. Well, and there aren't a ton of rural democrats in Congress. Like how are what kind of conversations are you having with your counterparts maybe in other rural states or people that would like to represent them in the Democratic Party? What what can you kind of teach folks?
3: Well, I heard one person say, "If I see another tractor bump on a on a bumper sticker that talks about rural Democrats, I'm going to scream," and and that made me laugh because putting a tractor on the tundra just wouldn't work. Um, but <laughs> and this this really was a top, you know, the the issue of rural Democrats was a very large conversation during the caucus votes. If you look at Debbie Dingell shared a map showing where the leadership within the Democratic caucus comes from, it's either California or the East Coast, and there's no one in the middle states. And this is a concern because we need to be communicating with people who live outside of California and the East Coast, and and they have real problems. We have serious domestic problems. We have the highest inflation we've seen in my entire lifetime. We have, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. I don't have to tell you, I've never seen housing issues across America and across Alaska like they are right now.
0: Well, one of the issues that Democrats are prioritizing, of course, is green energy, climate change, phasing out fossil fuels. Oil is really important to your state. How do you think about you know navigating that issue?
3: Well, and this is a critical, very timely issue for me right now because we have an oil field off the uh, Prudhoe Bay, and it's accessible now because of seven-mile reach for directional drilling. And America needs bridge oil. We, we have to have um, petroleum that can get us to whenever we're able to go you know completely switch over to renewables and right now from april to september every month w- america consumed about 13 million barrels of oil from OPEC that we were we needed to buy that many barrels from OPEC and this willow field will provide about 3 million barrels a month and that can that really does speak to the demand that we have across America and making sure that we're getting as much domestic production as we can, because we all know we do it best here. It's cleaner. It's more efficient. we We have better hiring practices and some of the countries that are, not as good in terms of um extraction and carbon emission are very aggressive towards us. So this is a very important issue across America,
2: and yet, just like a minute left, I mean, a lot of native communities are being displaced because of climate change and rising sea levels. Indeed. how uh, do you, are you having those conversations about sort of this bridge and 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 trying to make the case to folks that there is a middle ground there?
3: Yeah, we would love to get off diesel for stove oil. Um, our our petroleum costs are higher than anywhere else in, in the country, which doesn't make sense because it comes from our backyard. But um, Alaska natives are very enthusiastic about new sources of energy. But at the same time, oil production covers 80 percent of our state's budget. And we're required constitutionally to provide education, transportation, and public safety. And and if 80% of our bills are being paid by oil, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Right. We're
0: almost at the end. Quick question, last question. What's the? You have to go back to your district like all members of the House do. What is that commute like?
3: Oh, I'm going in the morning. <laughs> I'll be heading home in the morning, leaving Reagan at 8 a.m., and I'll be getting back. I'll touch down in Anchorage about 3.30-ish, which is – of course, 7.30 here. So it's a very long haul, but um, no complaints. I prayed every day to get this job. I begged for this job. So I'm very honored to be in this position. Well,
2: good luck on that flight and the next two years. Congresswoman Peltola, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Marissa. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Tune in next week. We'll sit down with Bay Area Congresswoman Jackie Speer and talk about her decision to retire from Congress as well as her incredible life story.
0: Our engineer today is Christopher Beal and our producer, as always, Guy Marzarotti. I'm Scott Schaefer.
2: And I'm Marisa Lagos. Take care. That's right, a dollar and ninety-nine cents. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks, or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy
1: reading. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. Hey QED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more.